Assalamualaikum and welcome to Humanity First, Serving Mankind. It's a special episode today. We're recording from the uh, Jalsa Salana, the annual gathering. Uh, and it's a very, very hot day today, so we've got a, a slightly lukewarm uh, uh, studio. And today I've got three distinguished guests. I've got Professor Nuri, who's representing the, uh, the Southeast Asian uh, world. He comes as, a, as a, a tremendous heart surgeon, has got a lot of experience around the world, so we'll speak to him in a bit. Uh, Azza Sadiq, who's a, a, an ENT doctor working in the, in, in the Midlands, who's also serving as a, uh, a, a doctor going out to Africa and also looking after our, our food bank projects in Warsaw. So he's got two hats there. And Fazal Ahmad, who's a, a, a notorious HF uh, master of uh, jack of all trades and uh, master of many, I would say. So uh, <laughs> welcome, gentlemen, to, to this afternoon's show. Thank if you. I could start, start with uh, Professor Nouri. So Southeast Asia is a, is a large area. I know that we've, uh, we've, we've met before and, um, you know, I know you've got a lot of history of, of, of looking at heart surgery and stuff like that. But today, if we can, let's focus a little bit on some of the climate change. It's a very warm day today. So... How are uh, sort of water projects and stuff like that that you see, uh, you know, in some of those other countries? In the UK, we're struggling for water. Southeast Asia is uh, too much water in tsunami and then not enough in the, in the summer? Yeah, I think, thank you very much indeed. You're absolutely right. Uh, climate change has had a lot of impact in the Southeast Asian countries. And uh, we've had floods recently. Then we had drought particularly in certain parts of Southeast Asia. And this climate change has having a lot of impact on the economics of various countries. The poor are getting poorer, and as a result, things are getting from bad to worse. Mm. In, in England, we see um, sort of water shortages. We, you know, uh, British people often go, oh my God, I've got to turn the hose pipe off. I've now got to water my lovely roses with a watering can. It's such a different uh, subject. Fuzzle, you were in uh, talking about Sri Lanka uh, earlier. Yeah. Uh, um, what would you say there when, when you've experienced some of these other countries? Do you see that on your travels? I know you've traveled uh, quite a bit with Humanity First. Yeah, I mean, we, when we're looking at, for example, water boreholes and drilling boreholes, the number of times in the last decade now where you've drilled and then you're having to rebore because the water table is dropping. And, you know, whilst many politicians and leaders were saying, well, we're not sure if climate change is real, they know it's real. They know it's real because they see the water table dropping and then the frequency with which they're seeing droughts, floods, the intensity of the droughts and floods, just as Professor Saab was saying, you know, it's growing. Mm. And so you don't need to tell those people is there climate change. They've been experiencing it actually for a long time. As I said, you were in Ghana earlier this year. I mean, did you, um, obviously you were, it was a medical project, right? You were, you were out there, but, uh, you know, you, did you see issues with water? Is that impacting them? Or you were in, in a, a, an inner city situation where there was less of an impact? Uh, Asalaamu Alaikum. Well, um, <clears throat> we didn't see so much impact of that because we were in quite a confined sort of uh, medical environment most of the time. But certainly when you visit a country like this, you are, you are made aware of it, um, uh, not only by the patients that come and visit you. Mm. Um, certainly parts of Ghana, as, as you know, there is very significant poverty and they depend some of them depend largely on their crops to get a living. And so when there are periods of worsening drought, then uh, it, it is very difficult for them. I have to say, watching Humanity First on social media, it's always lovely. I always have this impression of Africa being, you know, warm and, you know, sunny environments. 
it's only by watching the Ivory Coast hospital being built I've seen floods and you know like I think as a British person I often sort of don't I sort of discount I think about a rainy season but it can be many months can't it I was supposed to go to South Africa this month, but when they told me it's snowing, I thought I'll delay that until later this year. But the, all of sub-Saharan Africa has a wet season that lasts normally from May till September. So they have th- three or four months of, and when it rains, it really rains. And I was in Western Uganda in a place called Mashaka, and we stopped off overnight and they said it's going to be a bit wet. It, I mean, it flooded. It flooded to the extent that all of the electricity in the whole town was knocked out. It was dark. Nothing was working. Mm. And, you know, you were walking out, stepping out into huge puddles. And this was overnight. Yeah. And it's not like uh, in the UK, maybe we'd say that uh, we can ha- use grey water. for We can collect rainfall and we can store it and stuff like that. But it's, it's almost rained at a biblical level uh, that, mm. that, that you see. Uh, Professor Sabi, in I know that you've had experience with sort of hand dug wells rather than than boreholes. You know, is is that um, sometimes in the field we have to use a technology that has been around for centuries of years, thousands of years, tried and tested things like that. You know, that sometimes can't be beaten, or in a resource constrained environment, you have no choice. Is that an observation that you're, you're you're familiar with? Yeah, that's right. The traditional way of working by digging water wells is probably the best because that is understood by the countryside and people who who live there. Say. We not only cater to dig wells so that it should serve the inhabitants in that particular region, but the main source of income is the livestock. Mm. So that has to be taken care of as well. So it's the the inhabitants of that particular village and also an equal number of livestock which has to, which has to be at least they should not go thirsty say. the other thing which climate change has adversely affected uh, the south asian countries is the the health side of it the, the maternity and the child diseases which they have right and that is quite a lot and humanity first is doing a lot of work in that field you know by uh, setting up paternity camps, the pediatric camps, and uh, also to, not to a large extent, but to some extent, educating the women of the villages by either giving hand handouts or uh, uh, educating them about how to use clean water, etc. Yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, we think about um, sort of childbirth, and in the past, histor- historically, there have been midwives and things like that. Is, is some of that climate change and people leaving villages to go and seek employment in the big cities, those people that would have remained in that, uh, in that village environment, maybe the midwife 40 years ago, uh, is now working in a, in a sort of industrial urban environment and, and we've seen a sort of population move. Has any of that happened? We've lost some skills and there's a, therefore there's a requirement of maternity? Or do you think that, you know, they always needed a maternity care and this is a new modern uh, facility that is helping children stay alive. You are absolutely right. There's a lot of efflux of the so-called semi-trained health professionals from the villages, from the rural area towards the urban area. So they are deprived of healthcare facilities, particularly with maternity and child health, they say. So they're getting worse. And Humanity First in that way is helping to some extent, some of the 
patients or the population there. So. Mm. As I said, when you were in Ghana, what, were, what was your uh, experience then as a hands-on medical person, you know, fresh from the NHS with Roy sources and, and all that money splashing around and oodles of, uh, of fancy gear. When you get to Ghana, what's the, uh, the reality check? Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's very different, as you can imagine. It's a complete culture shock. Um, for myself, I'd been to Africa before. So I'd been to the Gambia before about seven or eight years ago. So I had some idea of what to expect. But we were taken to a part of Ghana, the Upper West area, where there is very significant poverty and the healthcare resources are, are very constrained, very constrained. Um, and so we had to work in an environment where um, we didn't have the things that we would uh, expect uh, as a minimum in a, in, a, in a safe medical environment. So in an NHS hospital, we would have said, I'm sorry, we'd have to stop here. I wouldn't, I, you know, you possibly wouldn't even have started in, in that. Yeah, I mean, certainly we have, a, obviously, certain standards of safety which we have to adhere to, and if we can't, then we can't move forward. Um, there, th there are very simple things like, you know, drip stands, syringe drivers, ECG machines, blood bottles, very simple things which we would take for granted in our own healthcare system, which sometimes are not even available there. So you really do need to try and think laterally as to how you're going to help in that sort of environment. And that is why we feel now the focus has moved away more from doing camps, as you alluded yes. to earlier, to um, a capacity building. Right. You know, um, and this is a process whereby we look to transfer knowledge, skills, protocols, um, ways of successfully building a healthcare system that, that we have used in the West and transferring that knowledge to them uh, and hoping that they absorb it and they retain it. I, rather, I, and I suppose that the situation, you end up um, becoming buddies. You know, it's yes. rather like you can have a pen pal as a child. You write to some sort of a foreign child and, you know, you build a relationship. Here you've got medical, you know, like, okay, Sadiq has gone now back to the UK, but you're available, you know, with this modern technology, you could have a Zoom call with someone and, and say, look, I've got this terrible situation here, what would you advise? And is that uh, a, one of the benefits then? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, you, you've touched on a very important point there. There's a couple of aspects to that. One is, I found personally, I think many of my colleagues have found, is that when you step into an environment like this and you see what's going on, you see the need, you can never leave it. Mm -hmm. Your heart's always there and you always then feel somehow committed to that environment. I have to continue to do something for them. You can't just break away, have a single visit, uh, 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 and then walk away from it. Um, so, um, yeah, and, and I think most of my colleagues who've been with me have felt very much the same. Um, and that's why what we try and do is spread the word, get people, colleagues, not only from our own community, but yep. out with. Yeah. Um, and that's why we try to spread the word of humanity first and what they're doing and why they're doing it. Because we find also that people out with the community, once they join us as colleagues, they're also then committed and they spread the word and they see the good work that we're doing and they contribute to evolving and developing that good work. It's funny, actually, from the medical side, um, I know Dr. Hamad, he will take almost a 60-40. 60% uh, mm. of, uh, of the people he will take away to, say, say Gambia or wherever he's going, um, will be. Uh, outside of uh, uh, the, the Amdi Muslim Association and 
and you know maybe first time persons with with humanity first. And I think that's a, a very positive uh, model to, to 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 see. We have a we are a melting pot here, yeah. and we are not that um, you know. People talk about bubbles and little, you know, I'm in your NHS hospital, you'll have your little bubble and stuff. And it's great to uh, drag some of those people to, uh, the, uh, the, uh, say, Ghana or out in the field. Fuzzle, yeah. you've, um, you know, you, you talked uh, earlier off air about some of the countries you visited. You're probably our most well-traveled. Your passport must be fuller than most. Um, I've got two pages left. <laughs> two pages <laughs> left. Uh, <laughs> Ethiopia then. What's, um, yeah, that was one of the countries that uh, I've not been yeah. too familiar with our work there. Is, is, is this explorative work or...? So actually, I, I'm lucky that two years ago, and people would say it's a coincidence, but I got a new job two years ago as a result of my Humanity First experience. I'm now the general manager, global general manager of a business building hospitals in Africa and Asia. And therefore, it kind of dovetails in with what I'm doing in Humanity First. Now, in Ethiopia, we were deploying, um, they call it B-monks and C-monks. These are basic and... You know, uh, uh, they're emergency obstetric and neonatal centres. They look after women and children. And in a rural setting, the reason this is so important is that often the roads are so bad, the distance to the nearest referral hospital might be 50 miles. Now, 50 miles here, you're probably thinking 45 minutes, an hour in a car. There, you might be talking about half a day. Mm. And honestly, if you know, my wife's had four children. When when their waters are breaking, and you say, "Do you want to sit in the back of a, a bouncy cart for five hours to get to a referral hospital?" It's never going to happen. So they they tend to have the child at home or in the in the village. If they don't have access to proper water, sanitation, hygiene, you get complications. You get infection. If you've got postpartum hemorrhaging, you don't have the tools to handle that in that environment. So if I give you a recent example, we've just built a maternity uh, centre in the Kampot region of southern Cambodia. And there... This sounds like Professor Nuri's area, Southeast Asia. (laughs) So not only are we going to deal with maternity cases in the centre, but we're going to be training a number of midwives to then go out and do outreach and to, just as Professor Nuri said, to educate them on the benefits of having a birth with a professional care team. It's something the the UN is trying to drive as well. Um, And also, you know, being able to do triage if you're starting to see complications, spot that early and maybe send them to a a specialist centre. So this is, you know, we, we have to remember that Humanity First is only part of a system. And if we think that we're handling everything within our centres, we're misguided. We, we often will do referrals to specialist centres. Right. We're going to take a little break there for a sip of water and go to a small break, and we'll be back in a few minutes. Assalamu and welcome back to Humanity First, Serving Mankind, a special uh, Jelsa Solana uh, episode where we've got our, our three uh, explorers, explorers around the world that uh, have been doing good, good work. Now, we were just talking earlier about building hospitals. So if we can now focus to education, uh, it's a topic dear to all of us. Islam tells us uh, we must, uh, uh, you know, Rabbi Zidni Ilma, Lord, educate me. So we are obliged to, to do education. So if I can talk to you about uh, some of the progress that Humanity First has made uh, around education. You can tell us that we've got some facts and figures there about, uh, you know, our, our, our scorecard to date. 
So look, I think the, let's start off from the fact that there are millions of children not in education, not in school. And these are the, the rural children where the schools are too far away or they get taken out to do the harvest and never go back. Mm. So we started off many years ago supporting existing schools with furniture, with books and uh, other resources. Then we started to build our own. We've now built 80 schools and we're building more as we speak. And we're trying to make sure that they're good quality facilities, you know, the you know, the schools have, uh, for example, toilets and hygiene so that girls stay in education because what we see in countries like education is as soon as girls get to a certain age, if there aren't the hygiene facilities, they drop out. Mm. So we want to ensure that girls equally have access to the same education opportunities as boys. Mm. I, I know that um, it's also very dear to my heart because uh, both my sons <laughs> went, to, went to Gambia and, and uh, my son taught some A-level maths at Gambia and, and in fact that's what's got him his next job. Because And I would urge all of our listeners, it, maybe uh, we're always looking for donations to Humanity First in terms of monetary or, or perhaps uh, helping in our food bank. But also, you can volunteer your time. I think that I would urge all parents uh, that are, are, are of children, it's a fabulous thing to write in your CV that you, you, you've travelled out. And it's not always easy uh, living in these countries, as we've talked earlier. In terms of education in Southeast, uh, Southeast uh, Asia, uh, I mean, you, you educate people in, a, in your cardiac um, environment, but uh, talking about schools, what is your experience uh, and, and how do you find, uh, is there a growing need and, and does the modern world of, uh, of technology help us or hinder us? Well, uh, you're absolutely right that there's a lot of need for education, particularly in the rural setting of, of uh, Southeast Asian countries. Yeah. And uh, we've seen this and there, there is a lot of desire amongst the villagers, particularly the elders, who are completely illiterate, right. that their children should be at least literate. Yes. And for that, what we have done is, in certain areas, uh, they've given us the land, have, we've opened up a few classrooms, say, mm -hmm. depending on the number of children which we have, it's so about five or six or seven rooms, and in each room we have about 30 to 35 children and these are primary schools so it's co-education mm. and then we also have uh, quite a big playground and uh, toilet facilities yep. uh, and then try to uh, tell the villagers so that they can come and cultivate that area and do a bit of gardening also okay. just to make the school look Beautiful, and I think this is working very well in some parts of Southeast Asia, particularly in the village setting. And uh, I think in one region, I know there are about about six or seven hundred children in about five schools. And each year, we add on another class to it. Oh, so in, in certain places, there are five classes, so five years. And then we're going to add on to So that. here I am talking about modern technology, and actually you're just talking about bricks and mortar and books. <laughs> so, 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 so now I'm jumping ahead of myself, being a typical sort of Westerner, you know. So what laptops do you need? But actually it's talking about those physical resources, actually, and actually getting the kids off the, um, you know, stop, stop doing agricultural work and actually get them in the classrooms. But I suppose with mechanisation, some of those farmers hopefully 
uh, we'll be able to release the children to an education. But um, uh, as I said, you know, in, in, in Ghana, when you when you were there, I know you were focused in the in the hospitals, but um, these countries, uh, the African countries, you've you've, you've seen. Education is such a big thing for uh, that. There's a middle class there that uh, are striving to sort of to become uh, successful, and you saw that as well. People are looking to get educated. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, just to add that HF are doing um, exceptional work in this area, as Fuzzle Sabra said before, and the number of schools that they are opening. It's giving children who wouldn't otherwise have an opportunity to to get an education and move and have a pathway to moving out of poverty, mm. have that opportunity to move away from poverty. Whether that means just being educated to a level where they can earn a living and support their family, or whether it means getting an education to a much higher professional level where they can move to one of the bigger cities or even abroad and so on. So it's just giving them that opportunity and HF is doing remarkable work in that. And just one other thing I'd add to that, I think, is HF also, I guess on a smaller scale, is also opening orphanages. Right. And that's also equally important, although it's much more complex and there are a lot, lot of legal and logistic loopholes to, to jump through. It is giving children who would have probably no hope at all in their lives, you know, um, clothes to wear, food to eat, shelter and an education. And, and we've got giving... so a lot of history that the, the Benin uh, orphanage yeah. has been a, a long-standing one. And, and have we not opened another? We're just about to open a second one in uh, the western part of Uganda. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, as you say, the legal things is it quite yeah. a difficult uh, and yeah, challenging environment. But as Muslims, you know, we see such, uh, you know, we're, we're told how important it is to look after and be trustworthy for, you know, and keeping an eye on those kids. So it's a very, a very, a very um, glamorous project in that regard. The spirituality of, of of serving orphans is fabulous, but a little bit of a minefield. Yeah, I, I was very impressed with the work which Humanity First is doing in Benin. Mm. And uh, we had a doctor from Germany yes. and his wife yes. who are taking care of the orphanage. Mm. And there are now about 50 uh, children of mm. all ages, by all ages, up to the age of about 14, 15 years. Say. And this small baby, three months of age, who had a very complex congenital heart disease. Right. Mm -hmm. And she couldn't breathe. Mm. And uh, Humanity First Germany then paid all the cost to transport the child from Benin to a tertiary care facility. Yes. And uh, I was there to take care of the child. Oh, wow. And uh, we got a pediatric cardiac surgeon from Philadelphia, USA, wow. who flew all the way from there, operated on the child. The child remained with us for six weeks, right. made an excellent recovery. Nice. And to tell an interesting story about the child, now that particular uh, child whom I named as the Princess of Benin, <laughs> <laughs> uh, was an orphan child and her mother was mentally deranged. Oh. So whenever a child was born to her, right. she would kill the child. Now that was the sort of an illiteracy there. Say. So this was about seventh or eighth child till police found out and they took the child mm -hmm. from there, offered and humanity first then took care of the of the baby and that is how mm -hmm. you know the baby. Now just imagine the amount of uh, the humanitarian work which humanity first did. I mean it's not only Benin, but
but humanity first, Germany and international, and then the American the surgeon, and then the American surgeon also happens to be helping in humanity first uh, activities. Oh, this was a recent one. I saw it this on social media. Yeah. Yes, two, four yeah. months. And I think uh, and I, I, we must thank Fuzzle for his <laughs> constant stream of, uh, you know, he's, he's the engine of Humanity First International. So that, that's why you're so knowledgeable. You're your finger on the pulse. <laughs> it was a lovely story. Yes, I do it remember is, that. It, yes. it was absolutely fantastic. And I only got recently in these Eid, Eid holidays her photograph mm. with that beautiful uh, African dress. Mm. The baby is so healthy, and look at the remarkable attitude of the humanity first doctors from Germany who are taking care of that particular orphanage. That Dr. Sahib's wife, Vahida, selected a new orphan and wrote to Huzur that she would like to adopt this as her. Her daughter. So the head Zoom. of the Amity Muslim Association, so, where we're talking to an external audience, so right. that the head of the faith was was gave right. her permission. So gave the permission, and uh, that that particular orphan oh. child is now the child of that couple who are taking care of the orphanage. And uh, this. So is the princess of Benin has been uh, now the king and queen of Benin. Possibly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's a lovely story, and I think that that that's one of the things. It, if we can help one person, yeah. you know, uh, I know it's at sometimes a great cost. Um, you know, a lot of hours and a lot of money goes in. That's why we're always trying to rattle the till for, uh, the tin mm -hmm. for a bit of a extra money. And I, I, I'm so in awe of, of you know of the staff that we have at Humanity First. So these people are working for free. Yeah, that's right, absolutely. So the the tertiary care facility where she was operated upon, where these the 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 doctor and his wife. They were housed here, absolutely free of, mm -hmm. free of cost. There was a few months earlier, there was another baby from Senegal. Mm. And she also had a very complex mm -hmm. congenital heart disease. And she didn't, that's what I was mentioning earlier on in our private yes. conversation, that we do not take care, we do not really look after the persons from the community to take care of. Besides that, irrespective of whatever the class, color, yeah. creed, or religion. Yeah. So this was a non-community member whose child was having a complex congenital heart disease and was barely capable to breathe. Mm. So he wrote a letter through the head in Senegal to the head of the community here. And he said, okay, transfer this patient to the tertiary care facility, irrespective of the cost. Oh, lovely. To be born by humanity first. International and part and and some other. <laughs> yeah, oh, that's <laughs> lovely. I mean, that that is uh, um, we're we're blessed in that regard that right. like we have the ability to do it. And some of that money we save by not paying. Uh, you know, not as 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 is a you know private work. You know, you you're giving up that private care and going out and serving in Africa for free. I, I, that's why I'm just constantly in awe yes. of, of all that work. Well, if we can switch our focus a little bit also, we, we talked a little bit earlier about climate change and one of the other challenges that we've seen has been COVID and then also the war in Ukraine. Uh, and that's led to some interesting uh, challenges uh, have we've seen in terms of uh, the price of oil spiking and fertilizer pricing tremendously uh, causing great problems and food security fuzzle if I can focus on food security you know if you've got yeah. some uh, experience there of, uh, of, of some of your travels 
So this year I've been spending quite a bit of time in East Africa. And for example, I was in Zanzibar and I was talking to someone who used to import cooking oil. Okay. And he used to bring in two to three containers a month to Tanzania. And as soon as the conflict, I'm, we're only talking a month into the, the Ukraine crisis, he was saying, I'm now restricted to one bottle, forget a container load, one bottle a day. And he said, what can I, how can I ship one bottle a day? And what do we say to people? Now, that is not unique. I saw exactly the same in Ethiopia. You know, if it's happening in Addis Ababa, you can imagine what's happening in Makali or in in the Afar region and other parts of Ethiopia. And we were, at the same time, we were hearing stories since end of March, early April, that with that impact, you know, there are countries in the Middle East where they were relying on Ukraine for 70% of their grains, mm. 60 to 80% of their cooking This globalisation uh, has been a, a great great opportunity for people to forget about their internal uh, yeah. and get the cheap food and, and, and then dissolve their own internal mechanisms to make products. And so we've become reliant on this cheap stuff floating around the world on I these mean, easy containers. I mean, look, I'll give you a couple of examples from Africa. Sierra Leone and Zimbabwe, these were both net exporters of food. They were bread baskets yeah. of different regions of Africa. Zimbabwe, after the political... Uh, turmoil that they went through and they handed over farms from one community to another um, the trouble was that you had a, a previous community who were into industrial farming yeah and then you handed it over to people who were thinking well I've got eight children so I need this many tomatoes and you know in moving to subsistence they turned and a country that was a net exporter huge exporter to one that is now importing the same food because they're not making optimal use of their land. Sierra Leone, exactly the same. Before the Civil War, 70% of their land is arable. Right. And yet now, here they are, they've got 70% arable land, they've got 50% youth unemployment, and yet they're not using the land for agriculture, they're importing basics. Mm. You know? And yet they can grow rice, they can grow groundnut, they can grow many of the staples, maize, in Sierra Leone, but they're not thinking that way yet. And mm. that's that's where our challenge is to not just do work, but to impart knowledge so that they do it themselves. Yeah, exactly. In terms of, um, you mentioned also about Sri Lanka, which is going through tremendous political issues, um, loss of government and, you know, food strikes and, uh, and real problems. Some decisions that were made as a climate change to try and stop using fertilizer, um, have led to these problems. Uh, I think that do we need to reconsider some of those um, some of those policies at a government level? And is there anything a, a wee charity like us can, can can do? Well, you touched on it earlier. You said that we kind of forgot that we can grow things locally and our local supply chain in Sri Lanka. This was actually more to do with the COVID impact and the fact that there weren't tourists coming to yeah. Sri Lanka. Therefore, they were running out of foreign currency. Yeah. They couldn't afford foreign fertilizer. So they Especially asked people, when fertilizer doubled in price. So, so they asked people to use suddenly switch to local organic fertilizer, and it decimated their crops. Yeah. Now they've asked them to go back to... They're starting to try and import, but they don't have the foreign exchange. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean the market's unfortunately is an unruly beast. Um, I know that container prices are now back to where they were pre-COVID, so there's been a, a you know a tremendous spike which disrupted everything. I mean, and we have lived through some challenging times uh, as a result of uh, of some of that. I mean, as a Sadiq, if I can talk to you about our food security, obviously you run our. Not only do you do, you know, this road stuff around the world, but uh, you're also running the Warsaw Food Bank. Yes, that's right. Yes, um, yes. So um, we did a needs assessment in our town because there is, you know, there's poverty everywhere, and as has been alluded to earlier, we're all going. All communities are going through difficult times. And there are pockets of poverty. If you look around you, there are pockets of poverty in every community. You will always find them. And certainly in our town, there were definite areas of poverty. And so I spoke to uh, our lead for Humanity First UK with an idea of maybe thinking to do something to, to help these people. And, you know, one thing led to another, and eventually we opened this food bank. And we have seen the numbers just rocket over the last year. We've been open for about a year and the numbers have probably trebled, quadrupled, and every week we are getting new new people coming through, new families coming through. Mm. People just saying, well, we can't, during these summer holidays, we can't feed our children, we just need help. Or they're saying, well, I've got three weeks till my next paycheck and I've run out, I've got nothing else, Gosh. I need some food. So these are heart-wrenching stories on your own do doorstep here mm. in the UK, in mm. this first world. So it is happening here. And if you look around you, you will find these people in these communities. So it is it's just one small step, I suppose, that Humanity UK are trying to do in order to, to address this this fairly big problem here in the United Kingdom. Uh, and so listeners to uh, Voice of Islam, I mean, if you're, if you're in the Warsaw area and you've got some perishable, non-perishable food and, or, and, and also you need volunteers to man the stall. Yeah, yeah. So anybody who's, um, uh, who would like to get involved, certainly contact Humanity First, particularly people who live in the local area, the West Midlands area. We're very happy to have volunteers uh, from all backgrounds and particularly those who can who contribute non-perishable foods of any sort. Very valuable. Yeah. You, know, you uh, feed uh, families. And, and as a UK DAB uh, station, we also a shout out to our friends in West Murfield, the, in the Yorkshire yeah. guys, that uh, guys and girls that run that operation. So again, we've got two fabulous food banks in the UK. Again, desperate for uh, non-perishable goods. They actually have an allotment as well. They're growing some some vegetables yeah. as well. So, uh, yeah. but not everyone needs vegetables. I think that uh, as I've as I've seen at the Jules the, the vegetables aren't always uh, on the top of people's list. <laughs> but um, anyway, I think and the food security in the southeast danger is that um, obviously a concern. If you've got floods, then your crops get wiped out. Yes, it's, it's a huge problem. I think that is where Dovsab has mentioned. Puzzles have also a lot of experience in Africa. Same thing has to be duplicated here. I think we are just a drop in the ocean. Humanity yeah. First has started that in a number of countries, including Southeast Asia. They're doing a tremendous job. And for that, I think I would appeal to all listeners that I think we should pay in cash, in kind, in personnel, and in whatever they, they can help, mm. I think people sitting here like Fazal Saab and Dov Saab in the UK yeah. can finally see what is the requirement for a particular country and then yeah. send it to I, I, What I find interesting in terms of food security, if I look around, uh, our friends in Canada have an amazing, massive food bank and, and it's they've been doing it sort of 10 years, right? I mean, I think that uh, um, no, maybe 15. more than that. Yeah. Uh, uh, and I think certain countries, of uh, certain Western countries um, are able to do that 
maybe other countries are not. I think it, there's a, there's sometimes there's a local knowledge or a local gap. So I like the fact that we're wherever we are, um, there's a slightly different. So in Southeast Asia, there might be slightly different medical requirement than we you know would have in Ghana, for example. Mm. Um, the gaps are sometimes there, but there's at least a consistent requirement for money, <laughs> for personnel, and for for enthusiastic people to come forward. I think that's one of the things we require, right, Fuzzle? We need uh, people that go-getters. I mean, what, what I would say is that educate, let's come back to education. Okay. So, um, Sierra Leone suffered badly a decade ago through the Ebola crisis, and A, people were, culturally, were used to kissing a deceased body before it was buried. There were many cultures. They didn't have access to water and sanitation in villages. Once Ebola died down, we took the opportunity in schools across Sierra Leone to build uh, latrine facilities with water and train children in how to, uh, in how to you know, use Be the facilities, but yeah. with water. Yeah. And then they took it to their villages and imparted that knowledge. We trained them in how to be safe from Ebola in the future and hand washing and things like that. And they took that into the villages. We trained them in basic agriculture and they're taking that back into the... So it's a kind of font of all knowledge, you know, permeating, especially in rural areas, to do culture change is a massive ask. But if you start in the schools, that's where you get the best success. Yeah, I, th- I think that um, you know the, the children are our future, as, yeah. a, as, a, as some famous singer said once. <laughs> so, so where are you next then, Fuzzle? So let's go around the tables. Who, who, where are you off to next? In the next year, for example, what, when Jolsa 2023, uh, what will we be talking about? Well, actually, next week I'm going to Ghana. Well, there you go. Northern Ghana, the Lerigu, Wale Wale area. So. Okay, okay. And what, what will you be doing there? Sort of a, a more explorative work or? Uh, schools, and um, I'm looking at Agric, projects and also I'm reviewing what they're doing with water and trying to see if they can get involved in solar boreholes rather than traditional hand pumps. So and, is, and in solar boreholes, is that working with IEEE, our friends yes. in the, yeah, the yeah. engineers there? Yeah, yeah. They've, they've been active in Ghana doing that, but you know we've had the same experience. In fact, I just sent the team to South Africa in the Limpopo area. We're looking to start exactly the same. In Gambia, we've done a few, so we're learning all the time. Is there less moving parts? I take it. Well, you know, instead of having a petrol engine where fuel is expensive, there's no manual pumping to get. You know, the the pump, uh, the water is pumped up into a central tank yeah. using solar, and then can be distributed through gravity around a village and so it, it lasts longer there's less moving parts and less you know the mean time between failures is much much bigger but there are some unintended consequences this will make you laugh so we did that in one of the villages in um, in sub-saharan africa and you know we we used solar put it up into a big tank took it to taps around you know this is in benin and the women were really upset really upset and we said We've made it easy for you. You've got a tap within 10 meters of your house now. And they said, where do we go now for our social interaction? You've killed our social <laughs> You've killed interaction. our water cooler moment. <laughs> so the water cooler moment. Oh, that is lovely. But, uh, but, but now they have that facility. They're happy now. They're yeah, happy now. Yeah, but yeah. The, there was a period where they were thinking, you know, 
where do we get the latest news from? But Gosh. now they've found another oh, way. Oh, uh, one thing that worries me slightly, though, is that uh, when we make water available, people go, ah, I can start irrigating my crops, and then they use more water. Is that one of the challenges? We've got to find that balance between making sure they've got water to for, for, for cooking and cleaning and, and vice versa, but not too much so that they go and use it all up um, on some mad project uh, growing, uh, growing vegetables. Is that a challenge? I mean, we were discussing this earlier, weren't we? And it's actually about, you know, th there's a water table and mm. there's the geography yep. uh, and geology of what yes. you're drilling into. So actually, if you do it properly, you would do a test drill first. Uh, even it's not just about the volumes of water. You'll find that you know, in, in parts of Africa, you can drill to 50 meters and get water. You can drill to 150 meters and get water. And there were some charities who thought, we're big, we're rich. Let's drill to 150 meters with a solar borehole, and isn't that great? And I was taken to a village called Pancheng in Gambia, where an organisation had spent twenty, thirty thousand dollars doing this. They had a massive solar array there. However, they drilled so far that the water that was coming out was totally salty. Ah, they so got then, into the saline, so, yeah. and they'd gone. They'd mm -hmm. gone back to the Middle East. So then they asked us, "Can you put a desalination plant <laughs> you know, between the water coming up yeah. and the tank?" You know, if you use your intelligence, find out where the potable, where the yeah, drinking yeah, water yeah, yeah. is, and drill to just that to that level. level. Okay, that level. and I suppose it's a, it's a, it goes back to if there's no recharge, and we go into a climate change, and there's less recharge over the next ten years. Sometimes water is like an oil. It this is fossil water. This is water that was uh, first put in the aquifer a hundred thousand years ago, a million years ago. And that won't last forever, especially if there's no recharge. So, a very challenging environment sometimes. That, as I said, where's you? Where have you got? What are your plans? So, inshallah, God willing, um, early next year we're hoping to go back to Ghana, um, up west region again, taking a larger um, group of doctors with us. Um, I think the the challenges we alluded to are particularly maternal health and paediatric health. That's where the greatest morbidity and mortality is. So those are the areas we're going to concentrate on. We're also going to try and link up with a gift of sight program, okay. which is another yeah. initiative of Humanity yeah. First, as you know. And we're going to try and link that up in one visit. So fabulous. So yeah, that's for the early part of the, the year. Professor Nuri, we've got thirty seconds left or so. To see, have you got any magic plans? So you, know, you should take yeah. some time off, sir. You, you know, you've done so much. <laughs> <laughs> take a holiday. But I think. All what has been said, I think this is the plan for the future. It's the water problem, mm. education, maternity and child, mm. gift of sight. Yes. I think we've got a lot on our plate. We must stop the show now and get on with some more work. I think that's the only way to fix this. <laughs> Listen, gents, it's been an absolute delight. I'm so delighted to have uh, gone through. We've had a round table. We've discussed uh, many of our projects that we've done this year and also what the future is. Can I just quickly say that for people who want to find out more, go to our website, www.humanityfirst.org, or follow us on social media, HFI 1995. Go get involved, get volunteer, donate. You know, we, the individual donors are the lifeblood of our charity. We don't get funds from governments or from anywhere else. So, you know, your five pounds, your ten pounds is going to make a massive difference. Goes a long way. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for tuning in to Voice of Islam today. This was Humanity First, Serving Mankind. Join us again soon for another episode.